My guest today is John Onwachekwa. John and I met online. Online. Yeah, on social media, on Twitter of all places, which is, of course, a cesspool, but uh, there's a silver lining. Yeah, you, yeah. Uh, I remember, right, you uh, wrote a thread on, was it white privilege or redlining or something? And you just broke it down. It was clear. The thought process was engaging. The metaphor that you used to like draw folks in made it to where anybody that gave serious intellectual thought, anybody with integrity that read it had to be like, yo, this is true, right? This is true. And I just, uh, you know, the sharpness, the brevity, the subtle humor, all of that. I remember I retweeted it and then I sent you a DM and I'm like, yo, Scott, like, where did you come from? And are there more of you out there? <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, 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 man. I, yeah. Still remember it. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, that was about a year ago. A uh, little, little over a year ago. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Is that, oh yeah. Cause we can time is weird now, but... travel at the time. And it's like, yo, where are you at? Let's link up. Whenever I'm in town, wherever you are, let's, yeah, yeah, it's wild, yeah. One day, one day when we can travel again. Right, 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 right. Who would you say are your, your role models for teaching and leadership? One thing I've noticed is that you are a very gifted teacher. Man, so so there's a bunch of people, right? So I feel like I have, through the years, like just kind of been in a buffet line. And when it comes to being able to learn how to communicate or to teach, there's a bunch of people that I pulled from, right? And so, I mean, this goes back to, you know, I stuttered like crazy all the way up and through, you know, maybe my sophomore year of college, right? And so... um so when it came to having a passion to communicate and teach, it was the type of thing was like, it didn't come naturally. Like if you would have told anybody that I went to grade school with, that this is what I would do with my life, they would be like, no way. John, John is not, nobody would ever, right, uh, spend time uh, voluntarily listening to John go on and on and on and speak. So it was when I really felt a burden and a passion, there were just lots of different things that I pulled, right? So my influences go uh, very, very far and wide, right? Uh, so yeah, we'll start like um, Tim Keller. One of the things that I love about him, I think that he's just an amazing thinker and a clear communicator. Um, he's not a dynamic speaker, right? Not, you know, he doesn't have a booming voice or vocal inflection, but he's just, he's, He's clear, he's uh, gracious, but he's firm and he's broad in what he pulls from. And he has the same, like, he's got a good center of gravity. You know where he's going to come back to. And so I've loved that about uh, Tim. There's a guy by the name of uh, William Branch, uh, who was a Christian rapper. He's a prophet, a school now and he was somebody that i looked up to so much because he just knew his bible and he could teach and you could tell there was no pretense about him his personality right came through and so i loved him charles spurgeon is somebody that i read often one of my favorite preachers and one of the things that i love about him is man every other sentence is a word picture so he doesn't give his time to long stories but he speaks in pictures and makes it so vivid and clear, right? And I love that. And um, and stand-up comedians are the best uh, communicators in the in the world. I've learned so much about communication from them. They're short, they're pithy, they're concise, they're insightful. And I think yeah, Dave Chappelle is uh, a masterful communicator there's no pretense about him. He can just sit and have people just eating content out of the palm of his hands. And he knows when I get deep, like, so yeah, there's so many people that I've learned how to teach from and I've 
pick some. Those are the main that come to mind. But if there's a universally good communicator or teacher that people admire, I've likely stolen a thing or two uh, <laughs> from them. Yeah. That's, that's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. What do you say to people yeah. who respond to concerns about institutional or systemic justice yeah. with uh, just preach the gospel? Yeah. What's your reaction? Yeah, man, here's how I respond now, right? I think there used to be a time where where discourse seemed a little bit more profitable when it came to polarizing stances, right? So somebody that would say, yo, you should just preach the gospel. It seems like we could have a conversation. Now, I do think when people do use that that term, it feels like that term is not an invitation to dialogue, right? That term is not a, hey, I'm going to say this and it's a mat at the front door. I want you to come in. I just want you to know the house that you're going to come in. That mm -hmm. statement is more like hearing the click of a lock at the front door, right? Mm -hmm. It's more like, no, no, I, I don't want to invite you into dialogue. I want you to know that this is me saying, I think that you're on the outside and the only way to come on the inside is to agree with what I have to say. And so I think there was a time where I would engage more back and forth now that that statement feels a little bit like a neon sign that says, yeah, closed, right? That it's just, oh, I, 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 yeah, I think this is closed for conversation. I'm not going to try to break in. I'm not going to try to convince you. It seems more like a statement of where you are. And I think that, yeah, that's part of the nature of the polarized uh, world that we're in, but I'd say in former times, what I would say is help me understand what you mean and how that solution helps to self-correct some of what took place in the past. So yeah, personally, personally. So what's changed in you? Yeah. A fatigue and a, a fatigue and a, maybe a frustration because I found man, I'm spending all this time trying to convince them of this, of which it seems like they're not going to be convinced. And for every moment that I spend trying to convince potential allies to come along, I'm actually forsaking the actual people that are in need, mm -hmm. right? So this hits very, very close to home. Uh, in COVID, we started off with five pastors at our church. Now we have four pastors at our church. One dude was a, a older white gentleman that was a part of our church. And we found ourselves in the same conversation, right? Where as the events of the summer of 2020 really started to transpire, uh, we as a church were saying, oh, we've really got to address these things from the scriptures, right? And there was a sense of, hey, we're talking about these things a whole lot, um, we should just preach the gospel. And we're saying, yo, we're talking about these things so much because another black person keeps on getting killed, right? It kind of feels like the book of Jude. Jude starts off and Jude says, hey, y'all, yo, I pulled out this pen and this pad and I was going to write to y'all just to rejoice about our faith but I found it necessary instead to enlist you all to come on because there are people who are taking the message of Christianity and distorting it. So y'all have to contend for the faith. So I want to write a general message about the gospel, but I've got to be specific in how it applies. And that's how it felt. So we were going back and forth. And I sat there and one of the things that, that I replied is like, man, I would love to, but I feel like if we followed that advice, if that advice was really followed in the U.S., just preach the gospel in the sense that you mean, let's not talk about what God's word has to say about these things, and let's just think that they'll fix themselves. Uh, if that were the case, me and you would never be able to sit down 
and eat a steak in the same restaurant, right? Um, the just preach the gospel folks weren't the people that integrated water fountains, right? The just preach the gospel folks, they weren't the people that were leading abolitionist movements. The just preach the gospel folks, they weren't the ones that were being beaten as they walked across the bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, like they weren't those folks. So if there was a time where just preach the gospel in the way that you said it actually worked to undo some of these things, then I would have more of a confidence that that's the way to undo things. I don't think we should do less than preach the gospel, but in some ways I do think that there's more that we have to do. So, and, and, and now instead of that conversation being one where we're volleying statements uh, across the board, it's like, just preach the gospel and I'll volley back that response. And I'll put down the tennis racket and it's like, yo, hey, I'd love to sit here and play with you. Uh, yeah. But there are actual people that live in my community that are really experiencing some of these effects that you imagine to be theoretical. So you can play this back and forth with somebody else. Mm. So I, it's difficult not to notice that some of these sort of just, just preach the gospel folks. Yeah are really eager in light of recent events, which seem, seem to have, you know, the, the, um, the storming of the Capitol building seems to have awakened uh, some sort of uh, sensitivity to, to, to the, you know, our situation here. But what's inescapable yeah. is that they're way more concerned yeah. about the fact that people are observing Right. Right. That those insurrectionists self-identify right. as Christians. They're yeah. way more concerned about that than they are about the the fact itself that right. those people self-identify as Christian. Right. Yeah. It's like if you just if you just deal with the fact that there are white nationalists yeah. who think that right. they belong in your church. Right. Then if you just deal with that, then you wouldn't have to worry about people observing. That's what I'm saying. So this is the like, this is the problem, right? So this has been the problem that folks have shouted. I get that if somebody embraced critical race theory as a religion, as a way of like, you can take any good thing and make it bad, right? So I get it. There's a potential danger. What is puzzling has been, no, no, but wait a minute. I just want you to address the specific dangers of the people that find themselves in your churches, right? You do not like the people that find themselves in your churches are not critical race theorists. That is not your danger. White nationalists are looking at predominantly white evangelical churches and that's the pond that they're going to fish in, but yet your church, by and large, is ignorant of it or how things work. Listen, I don't expect anybody in a predominantly white church to understand the ins and outs of uh, Hebrew Israelites or people from the nation of Islam or five percenters, because at the end of the day, they ain't coming to recruit you all, right? But, but it's like, it's strange that so much time would be spent on that instead of the very danger that they have, right? It kind of feels like if a group of rabbits were uh, championing, saying, hey, y'all, listen, we've got to lay off red meat and these steaks because here's the danger, right? You eat a lot of steaks, it's high blood pressure, uh, <laughs> arteries will get clogged and all this. And you you would sit back and say, yo, wait, wait, that's that's all true. <laughs> but y'all ain't carnival, like y'all don't even eat meat. I'm sure maybe there is a rabbit, right, that has high cholesterol, but that ain't even y'all's problem. 
you need to talk about the danger of the carrot patch that most of them are going to be in. And they don't do that. And that's what this evangelical obsession with critical race theory feels like. And so from the outside, it just feels like, wait a minute, this is puzzling. And so it just makes you sit back, or, or at least it made me sit back and just say, yeah, let me reevaluate how much time I'm spending here. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm not especially interested in like defending critical race theory per se. Right. I don't, I, I, I but what I noticed is like, I care about justice. Right. right. It's inescapable to me that God cares about justice. Like right. it's, it's not it, it, you. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I don't know how you deny that. Yeah. Um, and, and what I noticed was that the way the, discourse was being framed was if you care about justice then you're like a critical race theorist I mean, critical race theorist. all of a sudden man that that rabbit is great right because it because if if as if you're like you're one of the head rabbits right and you don't want to like you like the way things are right and somebody raises some concerns yeah. about like what's actually going on you can be like but guys you know red meat <laughs> red meat but steak yeah yeah you gotta watch out for that right 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 and then you don't have to change a thing no right yeah. yeah just strictly strictly from an academic standpoint one thing that's sort of bizarre about how that's played out is like all of science technology engineering medicine right. is based in methodological naturalism yeah. which which assumes the impossibility of supernatural agency right right yeah, yeah. um we have no reservations whatsoever about drawing true observations right. from we do it all the time so so to come along and say like well you know critical race theory which is not a monolith first of all but right. but in any case yeah. uh, suppose it's true that all critical race theorists are godless atheists so what right so what yeah so one thing with that and i just wish that folks knew like you know you actually find out that when the book of Proverbs was written, the Jews were actually late to the party when it came to writing wisdom literature like Proverbs. So what you're actually going to find is sections in the book of Proverbs that were actually written in earlier Egyptian yeah, writing. Do you know why? Because you don't have to be a Christian to know that you can learn a lesson from a hardworking ant, right? Christians were not the first ones to discover it. It is a truth just about the way that the world exists. The difference with the book of Proverbs is it's gonna take all of these truths and filter them through somebody that has the fear of the Lord. And so instead of saying, where did this one truth originate from mm -hmm. as the litmus test of it, we can use it, we need to say, all right, can we take this truth and filter it through the fear of the Lord? And now what does that mean for us right now? And and that's the thing, right? So so I just, yeah, so people that are interested in the debate, it's just been the thing like, man, at the end of the day, y'all talk about this all the time. I promise you, in the neighborhood that I live in, in Atlanta, that's a predominantly Black community, if I talk about critical race theory nobody knows what i mean if i bring that up nobody nobody has a clue like people are concerned with i don't know how i'm going to pay my rent or i've got to go back to work my kids are in virtual school they're falling behind i don't have anybody to right help them like all of these concerns there's some that are so distance and removed from the context that you can tell like oh um you actually don't know anybody that is uh you don't know anybody who is on the other side of this injustice in a very real way like and i can tell by the way that you talk the same way that i can tell like oh you don't actually ever you don't know a single person that had an abortion. And I can tell by the way that you talk or you know people that have had it, but 
they'll never let you know that they had one because they've seen the way that you talk of, of, about it. You make it so narrow. Toni Morrison, you familiar with her? Oh, yes. Yeah. So one of the things that I love about her is like one of her most famous books, Beloved, is the book of, you know, your story of this uh, mom and this mom, um, she killed one of her daughters rather than let her go back into slavery, right? And so it's this brutal story, but it's this long story where you see the ins and outs, you hear the horror of what she went through and all of this stuff. Well, that book is based off of a true story. Toni Morrison read a newspaper clipping that had this story, slave mom kills baby, that's it. And so it seems very small. And it's like, those are the facts and the facts are reported. And Toni Morrison says, wait a minute, the story is so much bigger than just the facts that are reported. And she labors to tell the story so that at the end, you don't look down at the mom in judgment, even if you disagree with what she did, but you see her with humanity and empathy and all of that stuff. And that's where I feel like, especially for people that are getting all of their racial interaction from news, it's people that are reporting the facts, but not telling the right story. So, yeah. There's always going to be a narrative. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so when you when you pretend that there's no narrative. Right, 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 right. And then, then the narrative is going to be your narrative. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Absolutely. One of the things that I've been impressed with by and one of the things that's drawn me to you is like, and it's going to sound basic, but you know how important this is, like your ability to think, right? I just feel like yeah, you're just such a sharp thinker, right? So it's like when somebody says something online, and I think my instinct at times is like, yo, there's something off about what is off. Let me think. And by the time, like no sooner than I process, do I see a Scott Coley thread that's like, all right, yo, here's 16 <laughs> ways about what they did, why they did it wrong, how it's been done in the past. And so it's just your ability to be able to think and to parse things out. Like my thing is like, where did that where did that come from? Is that naturally something that you had? Uh, is or are there certain like philosophical building blocks that you picked up uh, uh, along the way? What's that grid that you have? How did you come to be the thinker that you are? Hmm. Um, well, so I th part of it is uh, temperament. Yeah. Um, I, I have a, a family friend who tells me that when I was like four years old, it, it was like, you don't want to get in an argument with that guy, <laughs> uh, which I, I find difficult to imagine, but I, I, you know, I don't remember it. So I just yeah. take a word for it. Now, part of his temperament, part of it was, uh, that my parents, my family was like, so you get in the car after attending some, well, church, right. Yeah. For yeah. example, and, uh, immediate postmortem. Yeah. Who was thinking what? you know what was going on when this happened and you're just breaking everything down and my parents i guess they put a lot of faith in my discretion which i which i don't think i ever violated but they, but they just had adult conversations right uh, uh you know around me and i and i was allowed to participate wow. and one thing i really appreciate about my parents and, and hope to replicate as a parent is that as long as i was respectful yeah and knew that ultimately, you know, until I was grown up and on my own, ultimately my parents had responsibility for, for making sure that, you know, I made it to adulthood or whatever. Right. And, and so they were going to be, have the final say, yeah. I, I was allowed to question things. I mean, right. I was allowed to ask why and say like, I don't understand this. Yeah. And, and my poor dad, man, he, he would sometimes stay up to like two in the morning. I mean, he's going to go to work. He's got to do, you know, but he would just stay up and, yeah like lots of times, right? Lots of times. Yeah. And then I, and then I've, I've been fortunate to have uh, very sharp teachers who have invested in me. Yeah. Uh, my, my, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, my writing improved a lot in grad school. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it helps have training in logic, you know? Yeah. Uh, just to say, like, okay, what what are the implications of what this person is saying? Right. Uh, like, if we take this five steps down the road, where, where, where does that lead? What could possibly be a good reason for thinking that that's true? Right. If there's no good reason, what would be the best reason? Huh. What, what, what are their implicit premises? Right. Right. Uh, that kind of thing. So. Ah, that's dope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever grid you have there is a, is a helpful tool. And because you do it so naturally, you may not know how much there is a, oh, like, no, no, no. You do this better <laughs> than most. And so I've just found that. Yeah. yeah I, maybe it's uh maybe it's an, I have a, an instinct for sort of inconsistencies. Right. Yeah. And I think everyone has that. Oh yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I'm given to understand that children have it like the most, right? <laughs> like small children. <laughs> and again, I have to credit my parents. They nourished that rather than stifling. Them. A lot of white church folks mm -hmm. in the United States uh, seem to think that being a Christian involves adopting certain uh, practices or cultural conventions. Yeah. Uh, and according to them, these practices and cultural conventions naturally engender economic success. Right. In, you know, like work ethic, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. And I, I call this the prosperity gospel light. Right. Yeah. Because they're not promising people are going to get yachts. Yeah, they are saying if you do the right things, then you will be economically settled. Yeah, you'll be able to pay your bills. You won't need any help from anybody. You won't need any help yeah. from the government. Yeah, and they think that these are like you know responsible. I'm doing air quotes. Responsible, employable citizen. Yeah, uh, type practices. They think that's part of what the white church has yeah. to offer, and they think that that's part of the package that comes with the gospel yeah. as they see it. Yeah. And, and of course, this narrative totally ignores the ways that folks in white church have benefited from, you know, government redistribution wealth. Yeah. So it's fictional. Yeah. So my question is this. What do you think about this general attitude? And, uh, you know, it's, it's false. So it can't be healthy. Yeah. No, it's false. But, 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 but what role do you see this whole false consciousness playing in the idolatries yeah. of white American Christianity? One of the things that I would say is that um, that concept that you laid out, it's it's main or it's seen uh, potently and robustly in like white American churches, but it grows up in the soil of American Christianity. Right. So one thing about coffee, coffee, as it grows, the way that coffee gets its notes, flavors is that it adopts flavors that's found in the soil that surrounds it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's almost this inevitability that a Christianity that grows up in the soil of America is going to have notes of all of these things. Because look, that's the narrative that America has played out, right? And so it's been this narrative that's very, very myopic when it comes to the Black struggle, right? So there is this concept of generally right and and the thing is this you'll find it in the book of proverbs proverbs 14 23 all hard work profits right generally speaking but there are exceptions to those rules right and so one of the things that we don't factor in as well is something that eddie gloud brings up in his book uh democracy in black he brings up this concept of a uh, opportunity deserts right so it's this West End, where I live right now, is an opportunity desert, right? Google's not going to come into the West End and set up shop, right? We have, you know, a McDonald's here and American Deli, Wendy's. We've got a mall with a city trends, a foot action. We've got hair stores. We've got businesses, but there's no like thriving industry in our community. So what takes place is little black and brown boys and girls can come up through the school, work hard, stay out of uh, stay out of trouble and do all of these things. But the seeds of hard work that they plant into this soil doesn't spring up in the same way, just because of all the things that have gone on in 
history that have robbed the soil of my community of the ability to be able to produce the same things with hard work, right? And until we take those things into account, it's easy for us to look at the narrative that we have and said, well, my dad and my family, my folks worked hard here and it produced this. What y'all need more than assistance is for us to come and show you how to work hard. And it just kind of feels like a Nebraskan corn farmer going to sub-Saharan Africa and saying, all right, look, I'm going to give you the steps on how to grow corn. If you mm. follow this, I, I want you to know my my people have done this for generations and it's always yielded a crop of corn. Do this to the T and it should work. And do, do you know what you have? People can work really, really hard, but fam, corn ain't going to grow here. And, and it's like, no, it's not about our work. It's the soil. The environment is really what makes things wrong. But I think sometimes you have people, especially Christians, that'll say, no, look, no, Proverbs 14, 23 says this, and they won't look at the world around them. So they come up with this very narrow theology. And I think that's why things stay the way they are. And that's why those truths continue to perpetuate because the narrative that they have and what they've seen, right? They've been in Nebraska, right? Their whole lives. And they've seen what comes from hard work. And I think you make the soil that, or you make the assumption that everybody's soil is the same soil. And it's not until, right? It's not until you actually uproot and plant yourself in that same soil and find proximity to those same problems that you start to say, oh, you know, wait a minute, maybe there is something to all of this. So I think having a Christianity that is tainted with some of the flavor of the surrounding culture is an inevitability that you're going to find wherever Christianity is planted. But I think the problem doesn't have to stay there so long as we're willing to look at whatever brand of Christianity we have and say, not just is it deficient, but where where is our brand of Christianity deficient? Where has it adopted the flavors in the surrounding soil? And how do we best hope to root some of that out? Hmm. So, so there are two different senses of, of the soil there and environment that you're talking about one one having to do with uh white evangelical much yep. of white evangelical christianity yep. right and 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 sort of how what they've soaked in and then the other having to do with how the nutrients in the soil in certain areas are uh, lacking for yeah. for historical reasons yeah yeah that are that we can that have been identified and are in books right, right. 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 So could you talk a little bit about that soil in the second sense? Because I, I think I think part of what allows the soil of white evangelicalism to be polluted with, say, racist sentiments. Nope. Right. Yep. Is ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to write it all off as like, well, they just don't. I mean, the, the Internet people. Yeah. Right. So I'm not. This is not to excuse it. Yeah. But I think when people are ignorant of the historical circumstances right mm -hmm. there's an explanatory vacuum absolutely and you can't i mean you look around and you're like hmm well the average white family has 134 thousand dollars in wealth and the average uh african-american family has eleven thousand dollars right in wealth and i don't know about any of the the right. history behind this so well how do i explain it i don't i mean yeah. There must be, if it's not, you know, if it's not a, a standing feature of our society that's caused this, right? Well, there must be something different, right? Yeah, but, yeah. So, so into if you don't know what happened, then, yep. then you're, you know, you're going to come up with explanations, and yep. and a lot of those explanations are going to be racist, right? 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 right. Yeah. 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 So, could you if could you talk a little bit about about that? Let's. Um, black people were freed from slavery. 1865 or 1863 to 65 in the years afterwards, they were finally able to work and earn money and invest that 
and invest those funds into banks. This bank was called the Freedmen's Bank. So the people that owned the Freedmen's Bank were not black people. They were white people. And they convinced these black folks, hey, work. And if you work and save up enough money in this bank, then what you can do is you can actually buy land and buy a house and be on your way to the American dream. The problem with this bank was uh, they took the money from black people, but they wouldn't loan them money, right? Mm -hmm. so, so now you have these black folks that are being convinced, don't gamble your money away, save it up here. And so they do it and save and save. All the while, the people that own these banks gambled the money that they had in the bank on the railroads. When the railroad bubble burst, half of black wealth was lost in an instant. Everybody knew who did it and who was responsible for it. And do you know all black folks got was a condolence card that said, sorry for your loss. Let's try again. Hey, let's move forward. Let's be unified. So that's why to this day, right, survey your black friends and find out how many of their grandparents still don't put money in banks. Right. And so so if that was not enough, then what you have is this uh, blue collar families existed. Right. When the U.S. was very much industrial. And then in order to right the middle class was not some inevitability that took place. The middle class was created primarily through home ownership. It is the most basic and ordinary way to build wealth. The problem was in an industrial society like the one that we lived in and where folks worked, people didn't have the funds to put 20% down. So the FHA was created in order to help loan families or help families get these loans at an affordable rate so that they can buy homes and build wealth. The problem was the FHA would loan money to white families and not black families. So here what you have, the government gave an advantage to people based on nothing other than the color of their skin, right? And so what you have there is this, affirmative action in actuality preceding the invention of the term, right? Like there's so many things that, that, that take place, right? Our daughter was born and then we gave her a name. Just, things exist before they are given names, right? Mm -hmm. Affirmative action, the existence of it predated the naming of it. So everybody that's like, oh, no, I'm not for affirmative action. And I think it's unfair to help folks just based on the color of their skin. The only time that was universally agreed upon was post the civil rights movement when that advantage was already there. And they're like, hey, y'all are right. Let's not help anybody based on the color of their skin. The problem is unless the government stepped in to proactively do that, they wouldn't undo the wrong that they've done, right? And, and there's a million other things that have gone on from that standpoint. And you just look at like how generations and how things change. So I live in Atlanta. In the 1930s, uh, there's maps online where Atlanta was redlined. African-American communities were outlined in red um, and they did not get the same loans for the FHA. So what you have is there's a redlining map that was drawn in Atlanta in the 1930s. All the people that drew that map are dead and gone. Mm -hmm. In 2010, there was census data produced for the city of Atlanta. Racially, you could overlay both of those maps and it's the exact same thing, right? And so what you see is the intention of the people that were racist, uh, their, their inventions basically outlived and trumped their intentions. And so you don't need people that have the same amount of racism in their bones in order for this to perpetuate. What you, all you need is an absence of people that have a desire to go back and to repair and things are just going to continue, right? 
that wheel is just going to continue to roll down the hill and it's not going to stop unless something stops it. And even if it stops that the wheel is still downhill, somebody has to go back into reverse it. Right. So all of those things take place. So now when it comes to being able to send your kids off to college, here's what takes place. Right. I'm the third of five kids. My parents are immigrants. They came from Nigeria in the 70s. Um, I wasn't a perfect kid, but yo, I never got high. I've never been drunk in my whole life. I never got anybody pregnant before I went off to school. I made good grades, stayed out of trouble, and I got into a good school. The problem was I'm a black kid. I'm the third out of five. I didn't have a scholarship to go to that school. So by the time I get done with Baylor University, I have $60,000 in student debt, right? So let me show you how all of this stuff plays out. Now, I'm a Christian. I really want to walk with the Lord. Missions, I, 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 I want that to be my thing. So uh, the denomination that I was a part of, the Southern Baptist Convention, and we had had talked about this at times, um, out of a good heart, the SBC, when it comes to missions work, you don't have to raise a dime. They send folks out there on the, the field. We had friends that were getting ready to go out on the field, and the unofficial policy that they had there at the time, or what they were told was, we're going to send folks out on the field, but we want you to have seminary. And we don't want or we don't contribute to people that have more than $25,000 in student loans because we don't want that money just to go to pay for your loans, right? Yeah, it, it was an innocent safeguard that they put up there to guard them against investing in people that were irresponsible, but it was an ignorant safeguard because it didn't take into account socioeconomic wealth gaps that have nothing to do with the decisions that the kids or the parents made, but have everything to do with the hundreds of years of government sanctioned oppression that takes place of which like we're sitting in the shade of the oak tree of the acorn that was planted way back then. Mm -hmm. So you get to a place where it's like, you've got a black kid. It's like, I've done everything right. I've worked hard. I stayed out of trouble. Didn't get anybody pregnant went to school, went to seminary, and I'm ready to go out on the field. And now I'm disqualified, not because of anything that I've done, but it's very unlikely that a white person that grew up middle class who did all those things would find themselves in the same predicament. And that's what we mean when, when we say, no, racism exists in structures. And let's Let's talk about Jesus all day. Jesus died for our sins. Praise God, we're preaching the gospel. And if we want to get more Black people on the field and we really want to be representative of the kingdom, let's talk about some of these policies that are in place, right? We're not trying to indict anybody. We're just saying, let's talk about how the world that we live in has put Black people at a disadvantage. And let's us as Christians talk about repairing that breach in terms of charity and not obligation, right? So that's kind of a, I'm not sure if that's what you were trying to get at, but I was just, those that, are all that, worlds. That is indeed what I was trying to get at. And and you, you connected it beautifully to how the church yeah. might be complicit yeah. in certain things. And, and, you know, the, the, aside from just preach the gospel, right? The other answer you get in these situations is like, well, well, I'm not racist. Right. Like, dude, <laughs> like, no, I didn't say anything about you. Like, what are you? <laughs> right. But there's the whole, like, when there's the, the explanatory vacuum, you know, racist attitudes can creep in as a separate matter from that, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about institutions and systems being yeah. racist. Yeah. Right? It doesn't have anything to do with, it, with what goes on in your head. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing whatsoever. Right. We are, we, we are going on in history. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The rules themselves. Right. Can be bad. Yeah. And, and, and everyone understands this. Yeah. Uh, innately. Right. When you object to a law that you believe to be unjust. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying like, apart from the bad motives of whoever is doing whatever, 
this is a bad rule. Right. And, and uh, we should change it. Yeah. And then they want to talk about, well, you know, we'll just, I've seen some of the talk. We've finally gotten some folks in these circles to admit like, yes, yeah, systemic injustice actually exists yeah. apart from, you know, critical race theory. Like this is, this is, it exists. But then, but now the move is, okay, maybe systemic injustice exists, but we just have to focus on changing hearts. Right. What? So that what? So that we can make better people who can then change the institution. Like the way to change institutions is just to change them. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I'm not sure what the what the weight is about. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, I mean, I I mean, I know. I know. What is yeah. that? But I don't know what the reasons are right. Uh, the, uh, uh, officially. Anyone who's thought about like economics and finance and so on just understands as a matter of fact, the importance of home equity, yeah. the intergenerational transfer of wealth yeah. in you know, the, the contemporary American economy. Right. What's interesting to me is that apart from that, which is sufficient to understand the significance of everything you just said, right? right? You, don't need, you don't actually need uh, scripture to understand what you just said. Scripture does help to illuminate yeah. the the iniquity of it yeah but what stands out to me is in the old testament right you you see explicitly in places like micah chapter two as one verse that comes to mind but then just in the way in the paradigm for the way way that things are organized yeah. you see that this the ability to accumulate and transfer wealth yeah. via real estate yeah. is visceral yeah it, it it plays a certain kind of function in our contemporary system, but there's something deeply human about it. Right. Because the most valuable thing most people have yeah. is their house and their land. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. And uh, it allows you to do all sorts of things, uh, but one of the most important of which is leave something for your kids. Right, right. That is deeply human and visceral. And, and God does not like it. Right. <laughs> when when people deprive other people of the of the opportunity to do that absolutely i wonder if you might comment on that or also the different ways that the old testament is treated in african-american churches versus in in white churches yeah so i think I'm bringing like, this on you so no, no 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 it's all all good i mean you know henry mitchell uh is a guy who's written on black preaching and one of the things that I love about his book, in his book, Black Preaching, he writes this, um, man, one of the unintended consequences of depriving slaves of the ability of being able to read and write is it ensured that when the gospel was passed down from one generation to the next, it was passed down relationally and through the warmth that comes with relationship that it wasn't passed down in these mere cold abstractions that could be written, theorized, or talked about, right? So you even think of what some folks would call the sanctified imagination in the Black church, that as they talk about, you know, slavery and exodus and a God that sets them free, I feel like largely, at least in the circles that uh, the evangelical circles that I was largely trained in early on, the exodus was like brought up, but merely as, man, look at how much God wanted us to understand what Jesus did on the cross for us. He provided this helpful example of people that were enslaved for 400 years, and then he set them free. And black man is compact into this nice story, and the story is good, but it rushes towards, and look at what Christ has done to set us from free, to set us free from sin and all of that stuff, because at the end of the day, you have a group of folks whose main burden that they've seen or felt, that as they think of God valuing life and liberty and freedom, um, they think of it primarily in terms of this slavery that they have to sin, whereas you have a tradition of folks that, you know, literally couldn't read and write, right? Who are, as they're talking to their children and they talk about this freedom that God has provided to them, they're talking through, you know, missing teeth because 
nobody cares enough to make sure that a dentist roots out cavities, right? Teeth that have been punched and knocked out and they're telling their children about, no, look at this. Look, I know there were generations of Hebrews that lived and died as slaves, but there was a generation who didn't expect God to come. And even when their savior came, was frustrated because they didn't think that God would provide them freedom. And what God does is he hears their cry and he provides them freedom, right? That there are a group of people that there's a group of folks that would say, y'all are overly focusing on the victimization of mankind. The Bible doesn't call us victims. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall in short of God's glory. Absolutely, it does. But in Exodus, if you actually read the first half, God doesn't talk to Israel about their sin at all when they're bound in chains. God looks at them and, and he says, yo, y'all are victims of an oppressive system. I care for your freedom and I want to set you free. And like, that's what, that's what God does. God is concerned about freedom. God's concerned about liberation. God's concerned about yeah, how the poor are cared for. And it's more than just an object lesson to help us to understand the content of the gospel. It is a window into the very heartbeat of who God is. And we know that he's going to produce the same thing in our slavery from sin, but God caring about people's physical and actual freedom and prosperity and thriving in this world is an actual thing that God cares about. So, yeah. There, there are outrages, of course, that have happened in living memory, like the red line that you describe and its, and its consequences that are, that are still very much with us. Yeah. One thing I find that happens in some of you know in some of these conversations on social media is and i, I guess in in culture at large is, is as people will say well they don't want to talk about that right they don't want to talk about the stuff that's happening they're like well you know slavery was so long ago like that's the part and it's like well what, nobody's i'm not i like that's something we should talk about right, right? but to that point yeah. right it wasn't that long ago <laughs> right it, it, it because i mean i remember you had a guest on your on your show who was talking about, was it his grandfather's grandfather? Grandfather, yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. Okay, so it was his grandfather. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wilkerson in her book, Cast, one thing that she brings out is, look, in the history of our country, people have been enslaved, right? If we take the timeline from slavery and the timeline where people are set free, Black people have been enslaved longer than they've been set free. And nobody that is alive right now is going to live long enough to cross the mark. People that live. So that puts it into perspective, right? Where it's like, it hasn't really been that long. So let's not act like we're someplace that we're not. And this is not saying that, yeah, I just feel like the discourse has devolved into a place where if you say that, then you hate your country. And it's like, no. This is an indicative. This is this is just a fact. The way things are. Let's let's talk about facts, times, and dates, and then let's talk about a real way to move forward and to progress. Mm. To that point about progress, um, how much progress do you think we can make within the church? Yeah, broadly. Yeah, between uh, predominantly white congregations and predominantly African American congregations specifically i mean we, i guess we could speak to uh black and brown people more generally between the predominantly white and predominantly uh, predominantly minority congregations how much progress can we make in sort of coalescing in terms of our goals and working together yeah uh, as long as approximately 81 percent of white evangelicals are enthusiastically supporting economic policies yeah. in our nation yeah. that disproportionately harm their yeah. brothers and sisters of, of color. Yeah. So the question was, how much can we make? And I think 
oh, we can make a ton of progress because when it comes to God doing what he wants to do, the amount of people that he has on his team has never been an advantage nor a disadvantage, right? God's going to do what he wants to do. And he's always worked through a remnant. So this is why I think there's been a shift for me that I used to feel like the best use of my time was convincing and recruiting the largest group that I could. And I felt frustration when I felt like I was banging my head up against the wall of people that I thought got it, but didn't. And now I found like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to spend my time trying to work on recruiting potential. I'm going to spend my time on sharing the need and partnering with people who tend to see the same things that I do. And I think that's going to be the way that that the problem is solved, right? It's through really a remnant of Christians, right? Be it some of the 19% or some of the folks that in recent days have lamented the fact that they were an enthusiastic part of the 81%. But I do think it's going to be a remnant of folks that get together and show, you know, solidarity around a common concern. That's our North Star, where we have that and pursue Mm -hmm. racial equity and justice, then it's going to be the type of thing uh, that yields a diversity that nobody else can get. And it produces a change that everybody else wants. And um, if I had to project how this thing's going to go, you know, the optimist or the hopeful side of me says, I think God's going to use a remnant to do that. And amazing things are going to transpire as a result of this polarization. The realist inside of me is going to say, um, I think that's going to lead to that remnant growing by conversions of non-Christians to Christians and not primarily of conversions of Christians from one side to the other, that that change is likely going to take place by people that are outside of the church, distant from the Lord, saying, we've been trying to solve this on our own, and we haven't been able to produce the results that the remnant has done. Mm-hmm. What are y'all doing? And I think their introduction to Christianity being like that is going to be the thing that I think causes Christianity to explode more than convincing Christians who are in opposition to working towards racial equity and injustice. Yeah, I think there's going to be more new Christians that pop up from the soil than a swath that make their way uh, across an aisle. Mm. That's just speculation for myself. <laughs> I'm going to preface the next question with, with with an observation that came to me when John and I were talking before we started recording. So I told him it was be, being in his presence, I think, uh, <laughs> helped me come up with, with uh, this example just came to me. There's something about John's atmosphere. You just... the ability to come up with good examples is just sort of a transfer so the folks who talk about diversity mm-hmm. and uh what unity right in the absence of achieving justice or right. even even in opposition yeah right did you just they're sort of like i get these students occasionally who say i refuse to tell my students how many pages their paper must be right because right. what they will do if i tell them a, a page count that they have to reach is that they will sit down with the goal to write that many pages. Right, right. Not, not, not to argue for a thesis. Right, right. right. The yeah. goal is not to show, you know, X. Yeah. Uh, in addressing the prompt, the goal is to write three pages or five pages or whatever, and that's a really fruitless goal. Yeah. And inevitably, the the paper will not be good. Right. Yeah. Right. So, what will ultimately bring about unity and diversity is coalescence around a goal like justice. Yes. But justice is sort of prerequisite to any other goal. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
so with, with that sort of in the background, right, mm-hmm. we've got folks who, I guess in the terminology you just use, are sort of like on the other side of the, the aisle, right? We could call them Christian nationalists. We'll, we'll, we'll use that term, Christian nationalists, yeah. right? Who are not uncomfortable with Christian nationalism. Right, yeah. Which is a much larger group. Yeah. Right? And I'm not, I'm not going to comment on their personal salvation. That's not for me to say, right? right? But, but what they're doing is looking less and less like church. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're promoting false teachings. And mm-hmm. I, I think idolatry at a certain point. Yeah. And a lot of my generation yeah. and, and, uh, and your generation, yeah. uh, we're just not buying it. Right. Right. So what can we all, as people who reject this sort of false teaching, yeah. do to cooperate together? I'm not asking like, uh, what should white people do? Right. right. Uh, I'm asking long term when we are doing the work. Yeah that will ultimately bring us together as a, as a most welcome side effect of doing what Christ has called us to do of caring for the oppressed and sharing the gospel, not just in word, but in deed. Right. What does that cooperation need to look like? Should we be establishing parachurch or, or do not, do we need a new denomination? Right. What kinds of institutions do we need for, for theologically conservative Christians, people who believe the Bible, the whole Bible and the whole Bible, right? Yeah. Who, which is to say, who take justice seriously, right? Yeah. Like, do we like institution? Yeah. Like, what do we need? What's it going to look like? No, no. Yes. So I, I think all of the above, right? And I think the things that we do aren't going to be the things that bring about the change, but the things that come uh, about, like the things that are going to be established, aren't the solution. They're actually a byproduct evidence that people are on the right way to the solution, right? So I do feel like there is this kind of complete rebuilding. I think of when the Israelites returned from exile and Zerubbabel, or yeah, uh, he comes back to rebuild the temple. You've got Ezra comes back to rebuild the community. Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the wall. He becomes a governor. And I think that what is going to take place is as people say, no, no, listen, we spent too much time arguing with people who seem like are never going to be convinced, people that need to see it, and that's fine. Let's model and build it. And so I think denominationally, I do think there are going to be new lines that are drawn from a network, right? There's a group of us right now that are starting, you know, a network for church planning and trying to trying to strengthen the gospel work that's already starting to go on in black and brown communities. But we just know that there are different rules or paradigms that we have to have when we think about what does ministry look like in our context, right? And what we're saying is we're not pro-segregation, right? So we didn't put black and brown in the mission because we wanted this to be some sort of fubu, right, forest bias. We put black and brown because we just want to ensure anybody that comes along is pro-solidarity. This is the concern. This is the agenda that we set. So often, whenever you have people think multi-ethnic has to come by addressing these broad concerns, and we're saying, no, 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 no. Let's address a specific concern, but there's a lot of people that have hearts with, yeah, yeah, for that. All of y'all come and help us. And what we found is that the network that we're starting just so happens to be diverse. Because wouldn't you know it, there's a diverse group of people that are all concerned about the same thing that we we feel like is on God's heart. So to your question, I think, yes, like people are going to see, hey, the lines that we used to draw denominations in the past were primarily around theological orthodoxy mm. and uh, our missiological philosophy, but they didn't require anybody to believe anything in common about God's heart for justice. And it's a, oh, that's a hole. That's a gaping hole. This This has to be just as important as those things. And I think once we start to agree on that, we'll see 
nonprofits to come up to meet the needs. We'll see different ways that theological training takes place that doesn't fall in the traditional method of schools that have to have endowments to pay for professors, just because the economics of our community, at least, don't work that way. And I think we'll be surprised at the things that we'll see, but it will all be as a result of a diverse group of people that have a shared heart coming to work together. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I feel like I've been to church. <laughs> so, man, it was great getting a chance to connect with you, bro. I hope that we get to do this more. Yeah. 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 Likewise. It's, it, yeah. Uh, I'm going to, uh, stare at the wall for a couple of minutes and then I'm going to, and then I'm going to go out and, you know, yeah, I'm pumped up. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll probably write some stuff. Cause like, that's what I do. Do it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Thanks so much, John, for being so generous with your time. Oh man. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's an honor. Really? Well, I appreciate you. All right. Thanks brother.